Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we come to the very last portion of Matthew 17 and the first portion of Matthew 18. So we will read together Matthew 17:22 down through Matthew 18, verse 4. This is the Word of God. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we pray now that by the Spirit you would open up your eternal word to us, that we would understand what Jesus is saying, what he's saying to us, what he's saying to the disciples of every generation, that we would be your sons, that we would glorify you and be your faithful witnesses and your faithful children, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew 18 is one of the famous sections in the Gospel of Matthew because it's the fourth of Jesus' major discourses in Matthew's Gospel. And his prediction of his death and resurrection, as well as the temple tax episode at the end of chapter 17, are the lead-in for Jesus' discourse in Matthew 18. Now remember... that just as the Old Testament was built on five books of Moses, so the Gospel of Matthew is built on five major discourses by Jesus, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount and ending with the Olivet Discourse. And so this is number four in Matthew 18. As Moses' five books were the pillars on which Israel was built, So Jesus' five discourses are Matthew's pillars on which the new faith community, the new faithful Israel within Israel, will be built. Now there's a very common error in our approach to Matthew 18, which causes us to get off on the wrong foot, and therefore to get off in our interpretation and application of Jesus' words. We typically treat Matthew 18 as a kind of primer or manual on church discipline. Here are the steps members and officers of the church need to follow in bringing someone to account for their sins. That's the way we typically approach it. Now that approach misses the overarching purpose of Matthew 18, and it causes us to see Jesus' instructions in the wrong light. As a result, we can end up, and we often do end up, dutifully checking off the blocks of Matthew 18 while violating the whole point that Jesus is trying to make. Now, 
that kind of a standing God's word on its head was something the scribes and Pharisees had done with the law of Moses. And we can and often do end up doing the same thing with Jesus' commands here in Matthew 18. And we have to keep in view Jesus' main point and his main purpose. So turning to the text, like I said, the temple tax episode, which is commonly a head-scratcher for people, we, it just seems to come out of nowhere and go to nowhere, and we wonder, what is it there for? But it actually is the lead-in and, and sets the groundwork for Jesus' words in Matthew 18. Note <clears throat> that the temple tax discussion between Jesus and Peter turns on the difference between sons and strangers. In verse 25, kings collect taxes from strangers. They do not collect taxes <clears throat> from their own sons. The point here being, the unstated point, but the obvious point, is that Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore the temple tax does not apply to him. But note here that Jesus' sonship, his status as son, is extended to those who identify with him, namely the disciples. And accordingly, Peter is also exempt as a son because Jesus is exempt as the son. And that's the rationale that Jesus says that to Peter, basically, you, the temple tax does not apply to you and I. Now, all of this evokes Jesus' earlier declaration back in Matthew chapter 12, something greater than the temple is here. Now, note that while it is certainly true that someone greater than the temple is here, Jesus himself, the Greek there is in the neuter, something greater than the temple uh, is here. And I would submit that what he's talking about is not just himself. He's talking about the new temple of living stones, the temple comprised of people, of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone. That's what Peter uh, talks about in his first epistle in chapter 2, <clears throat> describing the Christian church. Now, all of this being true, the question naturally arises, how are the privileges of sonship to be exercised? Now, Peter already has one example. Jesus says the temple tax does not apply to him. He is the son. And by extension, all of those who are united to him are also sons, and the temple tax does not apply to them. Well, what are the ramifications of that? What are the implications for that? How do we work that out? How does that principle extend into all of life? And since Jesus has just predicted to the disciples that he would be betrayed and killed, and that part the disciples got because it says that they were very sorrowful in hearing this, they got the part about he's going to be betrayed and crucified and killed. They didn't get the part about him predicting his resurrection. They believed in a resurrection, but they believed in a single resurrection at the end of history. What they did not anticipate is the resurrection of the Son of God in the middle of history, and then the final resurrection at the end. And of course, why would God do it that way? Well, because he's trying to save the world, that's why. That's his intention, not to just wad it up and throw it away and start over. And so the Son of God is raised up in the middle of history. His kingdom starts in the middle of history to save the world and to save humanity and to bring us then to the fullness of the final resurrection. So that's what they didn't anticipate. They got his death and crucifixion. That's why they're sorrowful. They didn't get what he was saying about his resurrection. But the point here being is Jesus has just predicted that he's going to die and he's going to go away. So that naturally raises the question, who is going to be the top disciple? In other words, who's going to be the top son when Jesus is gone? Who's going to have that status? And that's really what they're asking when they say, who then will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because the kingdom of heaven is the rule of heaven on earth that Jesus is establishing. 
So the disciples' question here in chapter 18, verse 1, who then, notice who then, based on what just happened, based on what Jesus just said about the temple tax and predicting his death, who then will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So that question in verse 1 should be considered alongside Peter's follow-up question, which we will get to in verse 21, which is this. How often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? These two questions provide the framework for Jesus' entire discourse in Matthew 18. Who then will be the top son, the top disciple, and how often shall I forgive my brother for sinning against me? Now, what these two questions suggest is a backdrop which we are very familiar with as sinners living in a fallen world. The backdrop is what we normally find when sinners, even redeemed sinners, have to live and work together in close quarters over an extended period of time. Rivalry, self-concern, and all of the little irritations and offenses that go along with them. The disciples, even the twelve apostles, were not immune to this process which pervades the fallen world. And we have at least one actual example of it recorded in Scripture. When we get to Matthew 20, we're going to read that the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's the mother of James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, has them kneel down before Jesus and ask him a favor. And she says, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. Now, Jesus deals with that graciously. Uh, but the point is, is that the rest of the disciples hear about it. It says, when the ten, the other ten, heard, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Not just with the mother, but with the two brothers. And then Jesus explains to them, said, look, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over their subjects. That's the way they rule. That's the way they view authority. That's the way they view position. It shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great, let him become your servant. Whoever desires to be first, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, something very similar is going on here in Matthew 18, just not quite as pointed. We don't have disciples coming up and actually asking to have that position. But the question is here in the background. Who then will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' point here in Matthew 18 is exactly the same as it will be in Matthew 20. The disciples have a conception of status and position which is driven by self-concern, self-promotion, rivalry, and privilege, which are all the things that make the fallen world go around. Okay? But the kingdom of heaven comes into the world to transform the world to be what it was originally intended to be, which means that the world's way of approaching status and position and authority and ambition must be undone and replaced with how God intended us to approach these things in the beginning. And that, that is what the entire discourse in Matthew 18 is about. So Matthew starts off, I mean, Jesus starts off his discourse by sending a shockwave to shake up the disciples' whole way of thinking. He calls a little child to himself, sets the little child before them, and says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've already talked about how we tend to start off on the wrong foot with Matthew 18 altogether because we tend to extract it out of its context and we miss the point that Jesus is really addressing. We also tend to take this episode with the little child and to abstract it out of context and just run wild with it. 
Um, there was actually a group uh, in the uh, early days of the Reformation in the 1500s, and I believe it was a group in France, although I'm not sure, but uh, basically they read this verse. They said, well, do we take the word of God seriously or not? And they, well, we do because we're believers. And so they were basically defined by acting like little kids. They would run around and play little kid games and all of that kind of stuff because they want to do what Jesus says. They want to become as little children. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's important that we see his admonition to become as little children does not mean uh, what we often think. Now, obviously, most of us would look at this example from the Reformation days and go, well, that's crazy, obviously. But what we tend to do with it is just a few steps less down that path. What we usually do with it is that we think that we are supposed to emulate the general characteristics which we sentimentally attribute to little children. Innocence, humility, receptiveness, teachableness, trust, uh, trustfulness, and all of these things. Now, whoever comes up with this list um, probably has never been a parent of little children, or if they have been, they're not paying attention. There's a, um, there's a story of, of a minister who uh, was visiting at a church, had come to a church, and was asked to do a baptism there of a, of a little child. And uh, so he got up there, and he's preparing, and he sees that uh, where they have the water for the baptism, there's a white rose uh, laying there. He asked, well, what is the white rose for? And they said, well, we want you to take, dip the white rose in the water and sprinkle it on the child. And he said, well, why the white rose? And they said, well, it it symbolizes the innocence of the child. And he said, well, what's the water for? Because if the child is innocent, they don't need to be baptized. And so these ideas, if you pay attention to little children, you know they come out fully formed as sinners, innocence, natural humanity, natural receptiveness, and, and all of these kind of things uh, does not apply, as uh, it says in the Bible, the sons of men, they go astray from the womb. So Jesus is talking about one thing here. He's talking about status. He's talking about position. He's, he's talking about positions of authority over others. That's what the disciples questioned, concerned. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that is what Jesus is answering. So Assume the status of a little child, is what he is saying. One who is at the bottom of the pecking order, with no authority, with no decision-making role. One who is subject to and dependent upon others. Now, the Greek word that's translated humbles here regularly denotes status. It's not simply, when we hear the word humble, we think it just means a general mental attitude. But that is not what this word is denoting. Humble oneself here as a little child means to assume the lowest social status, the lowest social position, the position occupied by little children. When it comes to ambition, when it comes to status, when it comes to position, when it comes to exercising authority, put yourself, says Jesus, at the lowest position. Now, this requires a completely new way of thinking for the disciples because they're looking at things the wrong way around. What they think is right side up is really upside down. So they will have to turn their way of thinking upside down in order to get right side up. That's what is going on here. That's why Jesus is trying to turn them upside down so that they can get right side up. And this is why Jesus says they must be converted and become as little children. He isn't saying that they need to become believers for the first time. They believe in him. He is saying that a radical change in their whole way of thinking and desiring regarding status and position is necessary for them to function properly at all in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's not just a matter of functioning in authority or functioning in, in a particular role uh, or office in the kingdom. 
it's impossible to function at all in the kingdom of heaven unless we take our way of understanding these things and turn them upside down so that we can get right side up. That's what Jesus is saying here. So let's meditate by application on his words. Now the first thing we need to realize is this. Who is the perfect example of what Jesus is talking about? Who is the perfect example of one accepting the lowest status like a little child? Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus himself. Just as he is the perfect example of all virtues, all aspects of godliness, indeed, all aspects of what it means to be truly human. So if you wanted to know what it looks like when an adult, when a grown man, the most capable man who has ever lived, the most gifted man who has ever lived, the most knowledgeable man who has ever lived, when that man willingly takes the lowest status, like that of his little child, you just look at Jesus. You look at how he lived, you look at what he did. So we need to, as we meditate on this, first see what this does not mean. First of all, humbling oneself as a little child does not mean no authority. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 15, You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. He says, I don't call you, I call you now friends because everything the Father has disclosed to me, I've disclosed to you. So there is a commonality and a oneness among us, but it does not change the fact that Jesus is Lord. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. In John 14, Jesus says, He who has my commands and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And here's the criteria for being loved by the Father. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So it is all dependent on keeping Jesus' command. So we see him clearly exercising authority, indeed, absolute authority. And we know that the end of the path of Jesus' ministry, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, were given at the end of Matthew, which is that Jesus moves from exercising authority over his disciples to exercising all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what he tells his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go out and you make the whole world as you are. You teach them to keep all commandments that I have given. Now that's authority. Okay, so it doesn't mean no authority. Humbling oneself as a little child also does not mean no position. Jesus' disciples regularly called him master. And he called himself by that title. In Luke chapter 8, they come to him uh, when they're out on the stormy sea and they're sinking and they say, Master, Master, Jesus, uh, we are perishing. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for calling that. He gets up and he rebukes the sea. In John 15, Jesus will say to them, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also persecuted you. So who's the master and who's the servant? Jesus is the master. And he was exalted even higher. As a result of his work on the cross, his resurrection, Paul says in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. That's as much position as you can have. So, the third thing that humbling oneself as a little child does not mean is, it does not mean no ambition. In John chapter 17, we have Jesus before the cross praying to the Father in the presence of the disciples, Father, glorify me. Father, glorify me. That's as directly ambitious as you can get. Father, glorify me. 
In Romans 14, Paul says, to this end, in other words, this is where everything was going. To this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. That's ambition. Psalm 2, verse 8 is a verse that's quoted in the New Testament as being fulfilled by Christ in the resurrection. It says this, the Father says this to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Now that's ambition. And again, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go make disciples of all the nations and teach them to observe everything I have commanded. That is as ambitious as you can get. So Jesus was and is the most ambitious man ever. And through his ambition, he came to have the highest position and the most authority possible. And he is our example. Hebrews tells us that we need to look unto Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In other words, why does he endure the cross? What is set before him? Joy, which is a sum-up word for glory, authority, inheritance, salvation, all of that. That's why he endured the cross. And he despised the shame, it says, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So if Jesus is of our example... And he had as much authority as you can get. He's got the highest position you can have. He's got the greatest power and the greatest rule you can have. And he's got the most ambition you can have. And he's our example. What then does it mean to assume the status of a little child? In other words, how was Jesus so ambitious unambitiously. How was Jesus so ambitious in an upside-down way that is actually right-side up? Well, first of all, we need to note that Jesus' ambition, all of it, was Godward. His ambition was Godward. It was all directed toward the Father. In John 8, 29, Jesus says, I always do the things that please him. I always do the things that please him. That's his greatest zeal. That's his greatest ambition. To do everything he does to please the Father, to honor the Father, to exalt the Father, to magnify the Father. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Now, I quoted that part earlier. Glorify your Son. That's as ambitious as you can get. That's as direct as you can get. But listen to the reason that your Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So the first part of Jesus' unambitious ambition, his upside-down, right-side-up ambition, was that it was all Godward. The second characteristic of Jesus' ambition is that he did not exalt himself. He did not exalt himself. He let the Father do that. He did not exalt himself. He let the Father do that. That is a big point that is made in the book of Hebrews. Christ did not glorify himself. Hebrews chapter 5. Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. Unlike the Herodian high priests with which the Hebrews are so familiar. He did not glorify himself to become high priest. The one who glorified him with that title was the Father, the one who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And who also said, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. What Jesus did was this. Okay, He didn't exalt himself, the Father did. What did Jesus do then? In the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. That's what Jesus said. did. What you start seeing here is that right-side-up, upside-down, right-side-up ambition means submission. Submission to the Father. That's what it means. And submission means trust. 
You cannot be ambitious in the right way without a wholehearted submission to the Father. And you can never do that. You will never do that if you do not completely trust the Father. Now, we know that a lot of times it's hard to trust the Father because we don't know what's going on. There's stuff going on in our lives. We can't explain it. We don't see where it leads. It doesn't make any sense. We can't see the end of the road. We would be happy to connect the dots so that we could show other people exactly how Romans 8.28 is being fulfilled in this situation. God's working everything for good to those who love me, to love those who love him, i.e. me. See? See how all this works out? The problem is is we can't connect the dots, and it doesn't make any sense. And furthermore, the situation is protracting. It's not that much of a problem if we have a tough situation that only lasts momentarily. The problem is when it protracts, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on, and we can't connect the dots. We don't know how it's going to work out. That's trust. That's what's necessary for submission, and submission is what is necessary for the right kind of ambition. Jesus did that more than anybody. It's often said of great leadership that no great leader will ask a follower to do anything the leader wouldn't be willing to do. Jesus does that one better. He doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't done, and that he hasn't done in spades. Far more than we will ever be asked ourselves to do. Jesus was asked to subject himself to a judicial frame-up by the highest court of Israel and to politics as usual in the Roman court. Pilate capitulated to the pressure of the Jews. He was asked to willingly subject himself to a Roman scourging from which many people died, because it literally filleted a person's back. He was asked to willingly endure crucifixion. If you ever read the, uh, the works that have ever been done on it, basically it's the, it is the best thing that man has ever come up with to make death as painful, as extended, as public, and as shameful as possible. That's what he's exa- uh, is called upon to willingly do on the promise of the Father that something that has never happened before in history is going to happen now. He's not going to resuscitate. That's what Lazarus did. He resuscitated. His soul comes back into the body. He backs out of the grave, as it were, the way he came in. The Father says none of that. What's going to happen is you're going to burst through the other side of the grave and come out in new life, new glorified life that's never been seen before. Now, that's trust. That's trust. Okay? And therefore, that's submission. And that's what ambition looks like. Great ambition looks like. So what we see then with Jesus is this. Everything he did was for the glory of the Father and for the good of those around him, for the good of those he was called to serve. That included teaching and commanding. It included rebuking. It included disappointing people. It included offending people. It also included washing the disciples' feet. It included spending all night in prayer on their behalf. It included going to the cross for them. And this is where this temple tax episode comes in. It is an example of Jesus exercising the very mentality he is commanding the disciples to have. Jesus is the Son. He is the one the temple was a picture of. He was here to provide the reality the temple pointed to. He was here to make himself an atoning sacrifice, which is what all the temple sacrifices pointed to, and that is what the temple taxes were associated with. They were collected and appointed by God in the Old Testament whenever a census was taken, 
and they were given for the service of, of, the, of the temple, and they were actually, it was actually called atonement money, ransom money for the lives of those who were counted in the census. Now, Jesus knows all this. He knows, in fact, Revelation calls him the new temple. He knows he's what the temple is all about. He knows he's the one greater than the temple. He's founding the new temple of living stones. Jesus also knows that within that very generation, the physical temple and all those who persisted in clinging to it instead of turning to him, the real temple, would be destroyed. So, with all of this being the case, was Jesus subject to the temple tax? Does that make sense? Hardly. In fact, you could make a good argument that all the temple taxes should have been shifted over to pay homage to Jesus. The new temple and the new temple of living stones that he was founding. And yet, all that being true, Jesus, in order not to place a stumbling block before others, set aside his personal privileges and advantages. And he said, we will pay the tax. Now, what Jesus would never set aside was the glory of the Father, the truth of the Scriptures, and so forth. On those things, Jesus wouldn't budge an inch. And we see that in his confrontations again and again with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In John chapter 2, it says of Jesus, after he had cleansed the temple, zeal for your house has consumed me. Quoting there Psalm 69, they applied that prophecy to Jesus. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal for the temple has consumed me. Which explains both why the temple tax does not apply to Jesus and why he paid it. That's because the Father's honor and the purpose of the temple as a house of prayer for all nations were at stake. That's why he cleansed the temple and drove the people out, uh, the money changers out with violence. It was rather so, but the glory of God is not at stake for Jesus to set aside his personal privileges and to pay the temple tax to keep other people from stumbling. Jesus was not zealous, in other words, for his own rights and his own privileges. Unless the glory of God and the truth of Scripture were somehow bound up with his position and his rights and his privileges in a certain situation. And in this situation of paying the temple tax, in this circumstance, they were not bound up with his privileges. Rather, it was the glory of God for Jesus to pay it. It was the glory of God for him to set aside his personal privileges, to keep others from stumbling who certainly would have been confused by Jesus' refusal to pay the tax, especially in view of the fact that his enemies certainly would have seized upon the incident to accuse him. Now you see, all of this is why this temple tax episode is a very appropriate lead-in for Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is exemplifying the very attitude he wants the disciples to adopt. But the even greater example of the attitude he wants them to adopt comes in the verse before the temple tax episode, and that is verse 22, when he says to the disciples, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross, that is the ultimate setting aside of one's privileges for the glory of God and the good of one's brethren. And that is exactly how Paul describes it in Philippians 2. Jesus, he says, who existed, he's talking about his pre-existence as God the Son, who existed in the form of God, he did not consider that equality with God with something to be clutched, with something to say, no, I'm not going to become incarnate as a man. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to humble myself and do that. No, I'm not going to walk among sinners. No, I'm not going to be baptized to identify with them. No, I'm not going to the cross and to the grave. That would be clutching onto his equality as God. He didn't regard it as something to be clutched. Rather, 
He set it aside. He made himself of no reputation. He made himself like a little child. He took the form of a bondservant. He became a man and then found an appearance as a man. Then he humbled himself even further to the point of death on the cross. The Father's glory and the good of his brethren was what guided every single thing Jesus did right down to the cross. Whether Jesus was tender, as we see him oftentimes being, whether he was rough, as we often see him being, whether he was gentle, whether he was angry, whether he patiently taught someone in private like he did with Nicodemus, or publicly embarrassed someone as he did with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it was for one reason and one reason only. It was necessary for the glory of the Father and for the good of those around him, even for the good of those whom he publicly embarrassed. Now, when your ambition is like Jesus's, be as ambitious as you like. When your ambition is like Jesus's, be as ambitious as you like. In fact, the more ambitious, the better. Long as much as you can that you might glorify the Father. Desire as much as you can that you might do good to all those around you. But make sure your ambition is Godward, like Jesus' words. Make sure you do not exalt yourself. Wait for the Father to do that. The Bible tells us God is the judge. He is the one who puts down one and exalts another. Let God do it and not you. Now this kind of ambition is tremendously freeing. You might think this kind of submission, this kind of single-hearted submission to God the Father... And this kind of single-hearted trust, you might think that that's going to put you in a straitjacket. It's going to limit me from all the things I want to do and that I could conquer. It's like, well, it may be true that a lot of the things you want to do, you won't be able to. But the truth is, it is going to open up a whole world before you. This kind of godly ambition is tremendously freeing. It's tremendously energizing. It takes away all the rivalry. It takes away all the sideways glances at other people. What, what is he doing? What is she doing? What do they think they're doing? It takes away all the office intrigue and gossip and backbiting, all of that kind of stuff. It takes away all of it in the church. It takes away all of it in the family. It takes away all of that kind of stuff. So you're at work, and you're aware of the, the office gossip going around. Somebody's talking down, trash-talking the boss, talking down, talking down this other employee. So-and-so's trying to do this. So-and-so's trying to pull off a coup in the office and do whatever. It's just like that. It's just the world going around. That's the fallen world going around. You don't think that's encumbering? You don't think that's a weight? Trying to keep your head above water with all that stuff going on? What side are you going to pick? Whose side are you going to be on? It's like, you don't have to fool with any of that. You're free of all of that. Don't listen to it. Don't get involved. Don't need it. Glorify the Father. Seek the good of all those around you, those who are above you. As long as you're in an honorable business, you're there to make them successful. Now, making them successful doesn't mean doing anything dishonest or unethical, because then you're not making them successful. If you're helping them do dishonest or dishonorable things, then you're making them successful in the short run at the expense of real success in the long run. You don't want to be there. You just, you glorify God, you trust in Him. You pray that He will cause you to find favor in the eyes of those above you. And I'll tell you something, because I've I've worked in a lot of different contexts. I've been in the military, I've been in private law practice, I've, been, I've worked for government, I've, I've worked in a lot of different offices and a lot of different situations. When your bosses find out that, that now they're not going to know that you're motivated just by you know, serving God, although if you get opportunity to testify, you do. But on the front end, they're probably not going to know that. They're just going to know that you're different. And as soon as they figure out that you're not motivated by all the other stuff going on, as soon as they understand that with you what they see is what they get, 
as soon as they understand that they can rely on you to always tell them exactly what you really think and not what they want to hear, and that you're going to look out for them in the deepest way and in the long-term way, authorities coming your way, responsibilities coming your way, as soon as they figure that out. Because they know here is one person I can trust. Here is one person I can trust. So it's very freeing. It's very liberating from the heavy weight of worrying about what everybody else is doing and what's going to happen and who's going to get promoted. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to lay awake about that. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about it in the church. You don't need to worry about it anywhere else. God is in control. He knows everything. Sometimes he has us labor under tough circumstances for a long time, like Joseph, like David, like Daniel. But when you look at those men, and we all go, man, wow, what great, what great people they were. Well, what made them great is that in all these different circumstances in which they served, and a lot of them were pagan circumstances, they were motivated like Jesus by one thing. Glorify God and bless. Bless his people and bless the world. That was their ambition, and that's what made them great. And they bore up under every circumstance with that. For a more contemporary example, let me point to uh, Abraham Kuyper. Now, Kuyper, some of you may be familiar with him. He served as prime minister in the Netherlands for four years. I think it was 1901 to 1905. Um, but the lead up to that is, is really something else. He was born in 1837, uh, educated to become a minister, wasn't a believer, was caught up in all the liberal theology and everything, but after his education, actually once he's a pastor, believe it or not, this show, we think the church is in bad condition now. Okay, it was in bad condition then. Becomes a pastor, it was his people who actually led him to Christ. It was their godly lives who actually led him to faith in Christ and God doing some other things, miraculous things in his life that completely caused him to reject all the liberal theology he had been taught to believe in the truth of the scriptures and to begin to seek to glorify God and everybody around him in a, in a really remarkable way. So he's already been a pastor. He becomes the editor of two different newspapers. One of them was called The Standard and the other one was called, I think, The Herald. Now, the Standard is a daily newspaper. He's the editor. Now, that's a full-time job. That paper's being published every day. It's going out. That means, as the editor, he's got to be on top of everything that's going on. This was a, a, a paper. It wasn't a religious paper. It was a paper uh, for the, what was called the Anti-Revolution Party, which basically meant kind of the conservative Protestant contingent within the Netherlands at the time. <clears throat> So he takes that on, then he takes on the editorship of the Herald, which is an expressly Christian uh, newspaper, which goes out once a week. So he's now got a job and a half, a full-time job and a half. Um, he is writing books all during this period. I think it's some 200 books that he authored in his life, a lot of them big, fat uh, theological books. He runs for office and is elected um, to the House of Representatives, or to the Parliament for the Netherlands. Meanwhile, he continues to be the editor of both the newspapers. He continues to be editors for like 45 years of both of those newspapers. He's elected to Parliament. Um, he founds the Free University of Amsterdam, which is to be an expressly Christian university founded on the truth of God's word. He works there tirelessly at the university, getting it going uh, for 20 years while 
he's continuing all the newspaper work and the book writing and everything else. Um, then, as I mentioned, in 1901, he becomes the prime minister. It would be like president for us, the prime minister, the leading political position in all of the Netherlands for a four-year period. Now, the extent of his uh, accomplishments were such that in 1907, there was a national celebration declared in the Netherlands to celebrate his 70th birthday. This is not his church. This is not his denomination. This is an entire nation. And this is what was said at that time. The history of the Netherlands in church, in state, in society, in press, in school, and in the scientists of the last 40 years cannot be written without the mention of Kuiper's name on almost every page. For during this period, the biography of Dr. Kuiper is to a considerable extent the history of the Netherlands. He was a very ambitious man. But here's his ambition, as he stated it in his own words. It was on the anniversary, the 25th anniversary of his editorship at the Standard, he said, one desire has been the ruling passion of my life, that in spite of all worldly opposition, God's holy ordinances shall be established again in the home, in the school, and in the state for the good of all the people. To carve, as it were, into the consciences of the nation the ordinances of the Lord to which Bible and creation bear witness until the nation pays homage again to God. That's his ambition, okay? And of course, behind that, the reason why he's seeking that is because, well, that's the glory of God, and that's the good of all his countrymen. Now, he was also known as a very gracious man, kind man who would take time out of all of things he had going on to spend time with you, to help you with something, to counsel you about something. Because if he's not a kind man and a gracious man, all the other stuff doesn't matter, does it? Doesn't really count, does it? But he was. Now, that's, that's godly ambition. Now, the truth is that God only gifts somebody like Kuiper the way he did Kuiper once in a, in a great, great while. I mean, most of us, we just need to come to terms with the fact that God hasn't put under the hood what we need to do what he did. But that's okay, because God doesn't evaluate us as his children by how talented are we, how smart are we, how gifted are we, because he controls all that, okay? He evaluates us as his sons and daughters simply based on how much do we love him and how much do we love our neighbor with everything we have, with everything he has given us. That's how we're evaluated. And that's the great thing about being a son or a daughter. And that really is what Matthew 18 is all about. And I commend all these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.